Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I encourage you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of a variety of resources, including other podcasts, a free email newsletter, and more. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today B. Timothy Walsh, MD, on the faculty of Columbia University. Uh, Tim Walsh, after undergraduate training at Princeton and medical school at Harvard uh, and psychiatric training, has been on the faculty of Columbia University for many years and in that capacity has become one of the world's leaders in the treatment and understanding of eating disorders. Uh, he's now the uh, William and Joy Ruane Professor of Pediatric Psychopharmacology in the Department of Psychiatry at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. Uh, he served in a number of administrative roles at Columbia, including spending some time as chair of the Department of Psychiatry. He's the head of the Eating Disorders Program at the New York State Psychiatric Institute, has won many awards, including serving as president of the Academy of Eating Disorders, and has published countless books and professional articles on issues of eating disorders. And as a sign of the um, trust the field has in him, he has in the past and is currently chairing the working group for the American Psychiatric Association for setting criteria, diagnostic criteria for eating disorders that are part of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So Tim, welcome to Yale. I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks, Kelly. It's, it's fun to be here. All right, so the eating disorders are, are out there in, in the common uh, mindset a lot. Uh, we see celebrities with eating disorders and we hear cases of these a lot. So why don't we start by talking about what are the eating disorders and what are the, the current diagnosable eating disorders? Sure. Um, what we formally know about, where our knowledge base is really the best, um, are about two problems, two syndromes. One is anorexia nervosa, and the other is bulimia, or the formal name for it is bulimia nervosa. Um, in addition, um, at least in the formal nomenclature, uh, another label, another diagnosis is being um, examined called binge eating disorder, which is uh, binge eating without purging, which is the characteristic of bulimia. The purging goes with bulimia. Um, so we have those three things. We have uh, anorexia nervosa, bulimia, bulimia nervosa, um, and maybe binge eating disorder. Okay, how, and how would you uh, characterize for an interested audience the characteristics of anorexia and bulimia? So these, for these two well-examined uh, and off-studied uh, disorders, uh, the clinical picture of the typical patient is pretty clear. For anorexia nervosa, um, it's uh, almost all women, but not exclusively, but 90% women or girls um, who relentlessly diet uh, and successfully achieve um, a substantially lower than normal weight. Um, and that's the illness. That really is the core of the illness. And this, this illness has been around a long time, it, uh, even though um, we may appreciate it better now than we did. It was clearly recognized more than a century ago. Okay, so low body weight and relentless pursuit of thinness. Correct, accompanied by some distortion or overconcern about shape and weight. Okay, uh, a bit sure. more, a bit more than the normative. A bit more than the normative overconcern with shape and weight. These folks are even more uh, than the rest of our society. Okay, and uh, that would include an intense dread of gaining weight. Yep. 
Um, so the, one of the remarkable features of this illness is as these folks lose weight, uh, they paradoxically become more terrified of gaining weight, becoming fat. Even when people are pretty severely undernourished. Yeah. No, it, 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 it's one of the remarkable things is how people uh, who are physically impaired, I mean, people who have trouble getting their head off the pillow, um, walking for any distance, um, will nonetheless be terrified of how bad it would be to gain weight. Um, and what's also remarkable from a psychiatrist's perspective is their reality testing. I mean, they, they clearly don't see this issue right. I mean, they're clearly gravely distorted in how they understand what's going on with their own bodies and their nutritional needs. But in other spheres, they're okay. I mean, they don't think the FBI is after them. They don't have delusions of persecution. Um, they're otherwise, their reality testing is uh, is at least normal. It can be they can be quite clever and thoughtful and insightful. But on this in this well, territory, quite successful and in very some successful, like doing well in school and things. Like Indeed. That. So you have people who are tremendously successful professionals who can't maintain a normal body weight. Okay. What about bulimia nervosa? What characterizes that? <clears throat> bulimia nervosa is also an illness uh, that predominantly, but not exclusively, affects women. Um, the key characteristic is overeating, episodes of binge eating, large amount of food in a discrete period of time, uh, followed by some inappropriate behavior to compensate. The most frequent one is self-induced vomiting. To compensate for the increased calories Correct. from the binge. So again, there's, it's, it's, it's a sister disorder to anorexia nervosa. Essentially, by definition, people with bulimia are not low in weight. They're really of normal weight almost always. Um, um, and so they, too, were very worried about shape and weight. And after they overeat, which they do, um, they will compensate in order to avoid the weight gain by doing something like inducing vomiting. I know the public has widely differing views on how serious these disorders are. Um, much of what the public knows sometimes comes through popular magazines with stories of stars who have these disorders. Um, and sometimes they, people can dismiss them as uh, sort of adolescent, yeah. um, you know, flights of fancy or a passing phase or something that's not really so serious. How serious can these disorders be? Uh, these disorders can be very serious, uh, as in deadly. Um, I think you're right that um, often or sometimes in the popular media, um, these problems can be a bit romanticized in disorders of beautiful people or some such. Uh, in fact, uh, anorexia nervosa, which has been around for centuries, um, continues um, to kill people. Um, the mortality rate associated with anorexia nervosa is uh, as high as the mortality, or mortality rate associated with any psychiatric illness. So it's a, a lethal, con potentially lethal, not always at all, but potentially lethal condition. And even among people it does not kill, um, it is uh, a real handicap to their uh, physical um, and psychosocial uh, lives. They, they really are impaired um, in terms of how they go on with other people. Um, and if they maintain a low body weight, their physical health is impaired. So not disorders that should be dismissed. Right. Or and bulimia, bulimia you're correct. And bulimia, fortunately, bulimia is, is less physically severe. Um, it is not associated with the high mortality rate that anorexia nervosa is. 
But uh, there are physical complications. Um, people can hurt themselves physically. And it certainly takes a emotional toll um, and impairs people's ability to um, deal um, in, in an ideal way with friends and family, loved ones. Um, it gets in the way of life. When you talked about um, newspaper and magazine articles about movie stars and things like that, having an eating disorder glamorizing the problem, is there any fear that that makes these things seem glamorous to the yeah. person who reads it and may in fact promote eating disorders? Yeah, there, there have been concerns about that. It, it's hard to prove in a, in a rigorous way, but um, one, I mean, it, it's sort of, I guess it's the opposite of guilt by association. Uh, one of the worries if uh, a, um, a glamorous figure, somebody who is, um, whose job it is um, to look good in the spotlight and look good in the press, if they're identified as having one of these disorders, even though I'm sure the person doesn't intend this to happen, uh, there's sort of this image that there's an association between um, the person's um, uh, disorder uh, and their glamour. Um, and so unintentionally, young people may say, well, I guess, you know, wow, she has that. This wonderful role model has this. So it's okay if I have it or it's not so bad if I have it. Uh, it looks less like an abnormal behavior than a characteristic of famous people. And that's the worry, that therefore some barrier towards the development of a serious, potentially life-threatening disorder is lowered a bit. And I know you've presented some data that, that other people have collected on um, how ideals for thinness have mm -hmm. changed. And I know there's some quite visible signs of that. Would you mind describing sure, some of that? Sure, sure. I mean, it's, I, mean I, I think <laughs> those of us above a certain age uh, can remember if we think back, that we didn't see um, as many um, thin people, uh, lean people, um, uh, in the covers of magazines or the movie stars or wherever. Um, and in fact, there, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to get data, <laughs> but data can be had. Uh, if you look, and people have looked, at things like um, weights of um, Miss Americas, um, uh, weights of Playboy centerfolds, whatever you may think social culturally of those um, uh, phenomena, the phenomena of Miss America's and Playboy centerfolds, they're, th they're thinner than they used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a number of them, uh, certainly in recent years, a significant fraction of these kind of models um, fall below commonly accepted guidelines uh, of normal weight. So we have people who are being presented to the public, and often the young, uh, young impressionable part of the public, um, who almost certainly are at a physiologically, a weight that for most people is physiologically abnormal and too low. Well, it might meet diagnostic criteria yep. for anorexia. At least weight-wise it would. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know how they're achieving that weight. Right. But the weight alone for most people would be abnormal. Right. So these... The, the fact that, that things have happened in the culture to make it even more difficult to attain the ideal because the ideal has become so severe um, could be contributing to some of these problems. Oh, yeah. It's, it, in fact, people have commented on um, 
I've made the observation that while the images that are presented to us um, in the magazines and on TV um, have gotten thinner, uh, the population has gotten heavier. So the gap between where the average American is and where the people on TV are has actually gotten bigger. Um, and there's reason to worry that the occurrence of such a gap will lead some people who probably have other vulnerabilities uh, to engage in uh, practices, dieting practices, purging practices, exercise practices that aren't good for them. And another thing that, that some people have noted is contributing to this is all the focus on how certain types of exercise or exercise machines can sculpt different parts oh, yes. of the body. So, right. you know, when, we, in, in, when I was younger, nobody even knew what the term abs meant. That's correct. Um, but now it's abs and it's pecs and it's delts. And, you know, there's every part of the body is something that can be changed if it if not with an exercise, with a machine, with a... Or, or, or surgery. Or, or surgery. Or surgery. That's right. That, that you can never be perfect enough. Right. So the pressure on people is really quite enormous. Yeah, and that, that's sort of the problem is that um, most individuals simply aren't built um, physically in a way to achieve these standards. And it wouldn't be good for them to achieve them. Uh, physically, much less psychologically. So lest we, we leave people with the belief that it's, it's a social pressure to be thin, that's the sole cause of the eating disorders, I know you've, you've said that they're multiply determined. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot we don't know about causes. Sure. Could you tell us a bit sure. about that? Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, it, by, as this discussion has illustrated, it's, it's very hard uh, be mistake to dismiss the cultural uh, pressures that may affect the development of eating disorders. But it's got to be more than that. I mean, I mean, in, in just to step back from it, um, all of society, uh, particularly all the young people uh, in our society, are to some degree subjected to these pressures. Yet, fortunately, eating disorders, real eating disorders, remain rare. So the cultural emphasis can't be that powerful. Otherwise, everybody would have an eating disorder. And they clearly don't, and that's a good thing. So there may be an important contributing factor, but it's more than that. And the sort of the flip side um, illustration of that is that um, certainly anorexia nervosa was well recognized and named anorexia nervosa uh, over 125 years ago. So uh, at a time when there were very different cultural expectations of what um, attraction meant in terms of physical appearance, we still had the development of anorexia nervosa. So it's not just the culture. The culture may dial it up, dial it down a bit, but it's much more than the culture. What are some of the other factors that might be contributing? We have what might be boiled down to circumstantial evidence um, for a range of factors that contribute. Certainly, there is compelling reason to think genetic factors, inherited factors, uh, will increase and decrease um, chances, but aren't deterministic. There's not a gene, as far as anybody knows, I think no one would believe that there's a gene for anorexia nervosa or a gene for bulimia nervosa. But that doesn't mean that other, uh, the genes don't modulate um, how we and people react to our environment, react to uh, attempts to lose weight. So genetic factors. So the genetic factors could affect us biologically in some way or they could affect us psychologically Indeed. and temperamentally that in exactly. ways that exactly. could 
so predispose some people. No reason to think it's simple. Um, so it could, uh, just making this up, I mean, we, this, this is speculation, but genetic factors might make it easier for some people compared to others to lose weight um, and to stay on a diet, even biologically. Um, or psychologically, it might, um, genetic factors probably do contribute, as you mentioned, to temperament, to obsessionality, ability to make a plan and stick to it. Well, maybe, well, that is in many instances a very advantageous um, trait. Perhaps in some circumstances, it can increase your chances of getting an eating disorder. So these kind of influences, which have to be complicated, um, are real. So we've got genes. Um, we have, we've mentioned culture as sort of the a background against which the genes play out. Certainly, the, all the factors that contribute to uh, the stresses and strains of growing up um, matter. And that includes um, the family in which you are raised, um, your siblings, um, uh, your classmates, um, and um, the circumstances um, of your life as an adolescent. So the stresses and strains of that. I mean, do you change schools? Um, do you go to a, a one-sex school, one-gender school? Um, do hints that all girls' schools may have more problems with eating disorders, but we don't even know that for sure. Um, a lot of possible contributing factors. Exactly. So it's, and it's not to say they aren't important, but there's every reason to think they interact in a very complicated way. And so there probably isn't one way in which eating disorders develop. There's okay. not one cause. Let's turn our attention to what help might be available mm. for people with eating disorders. What kind of treatments get applied to eating disorders and how well they, how do they work and how well do people recover? Well, the, uh, a really important uh, fact, uh, I think we know it about eating disorders, is that the treatment, the utility of treatment varies with the disorder and the nature of the treatment required varies with the disorder. So uh, for anorexia nervosa, which is an illness by definition uh, of the maintenance of an inappropriately low weight, the first principle is we've got to help the person get back to a normal weight. Um, uh, starving has such a profound impact, not just on the body, but also on the mind and the emotion, that um, a, a broadly accepted principle now is that uh, one of the first steps of anorexia nervosa treatment is helping restore body weight. Okay, because of the profound medical and psychological Correct. effects of the starvation. Yeah, person just isn't, they're not dealing with a full deck, <laughs> not playing with a full deck. I mean, they, they're uh, just overwhelming evidence that starvation makes people emotionally more labile, makes them more depressed, uh, makes them more rigid and obsessional. And so when trying to help someone recover from an illness, we want to make them more flexible, less rigid. Um, and as you pointed out, that's not true just of people with anorexia nervosa who are starved, but people who are starved for any reason. Correct. These are nonspecific. I mean, it, it, we have enough data, you know, from some remark from all the awful accounts of uh, starvation in concentration camps and prisoner of war camps and so on, um, but also some remarkable experiments that were done during World War II and, and were ethical for the time, met ethical standards of the time, uh, have really demonstrated that uh, conclusively 
that starvation, even in people who were not otherwise uh, stressed, um, has profound effects uh, uh, in how people think and feel. Okay, so priority number one is restoration right. of reasonable diet and body weight. What comes after that? Well, that's, then the question, well, how, okay, well, how do you do that? Um, so, so, and then there are a range of methods uh, which ramp up in terms of intensity um, so that at the most intense level, hospitalization. And it's clear, we know, that um, units, hospital units, that specialize in the care of anorexia nervosa can help people with anorexia nervosa gain weight. Um, they can do it by helping them eat food uh, without putting down uh, nasogastric tubes or IVs. So we, we can help them get there. It's time consuming, it's expensive, and it's disruptive of life. To be hospitalized means you are withdrawn from your normal life, but it'll work. Um, other methods are also effective. Um, uh, such as structured day programs, uh, programs that help people eat several meals a day, um, and even, you know, less intensive, but particularly provocative and interesting as a development um, made in recent years of helping parents of youngsters, of adolescents with uh, relatively new onset anorexia nervosa. Parents can be helped to help their kid get back, on norm, back to normal weight. So, so the principle is help them to gain weight. The method of accomplishing that um, can vary significantly and vary with resources available, severity of condition, and so on. Okay. And then so what other treatments, uh, well then, what other efforts need to be made with anorexia? So the things that are added or, or surround the weight gain uh, principle, uh, the weight gain intervention, um, our um, education uh, about the importance of what we've been talking about, the importance of correcting starvation, uh, support uh, for the, the patient, the person, to help them understand that frightening though this seems in many ways, it is a necessary and will be a helpful first step towards recovery. So the typical psychological treatment during that phase um, is support and education rather than a push towards insight. Um, it's to get them through a, a difficult phase. If that's successful, then um, the next phase of treatment is uh, maintenance, relapse prevention. Once weight gain has been achieved, the person has to be helped to um, make sure their diet uh, remains adequate to protect the, the normal weight and that they, which is, uh, they avoid the typical problem that many of these people have, that the stresses and strains of life um, end up being dealt with by more dieting, by a relapse into the food restriction and dieting. Okay. And then this, so the psychotherapy is, tar is targeted at maintenance of normal diet and avoidance of, uh, avoidance of the avoidance of food, not relying on avoiding food um, as a response to psychological stress. So those are sort of the mainstays, I think, of, of treatment of anorexia nervosa. So I know it's a difficult disorder um, and one that can be tenacious at times. How effective are these treatments when they're applied? Um, in the short term, they're quite effective. Um, uh, um, so that um, if we can get people into treatment and help them to tolerate it, and th those are, um, are non-trivial 
uh, challenges. But if we can help people get into treatment and tolerate it, um, the overwhelming majority, 80, 90 percent, can be helped to regain to a normal weight. So the, this range of intervention um, is almost always successful. The problem is that uh, our ability to help people stay there um, is not as good as it needs to be. Um, that a number of people, uh, particularly people who've been struggling with the illness for years, uh, a number of those people, um, once they leave the more intensive structured program, um, end up losing weight again. And so it becomes a, uh, a relapse and a retreatment and a relapse and a retreatment. It's still worth it because um, uh, it helps in the short term and some of these people um, will finally achieve and maintain uh, a normal weight. But the other thing I'd, I'd underline about this treatment business is that um, certainly the understanding is uh, that it needs to be vigorous in the young uh, for the early onset uh, for kids who've just developed anorexia nervosa. I think most experts feel we need to be aggressive and sort of breaking the pattern before it becomes a way of life. So I think particularly uh, among early onset or soon after onset, we need to be sure that people get effective treatment. Okay. And you said the, the treatment picture is different for bulimia. Yeah. And what's interesting, one thing you, you didn't hear me mention for anorexia nervosa, for example, is medication. Remarkably, we don't have um, evidence that medications are especially helpful. Um, in contrast for bulimia, normal weight individuals, uh, for normal, normal weight individuals who are binging and purging, um, we have several uh, clearly useful treatments. Um, they include good forms of psychological treatment, particularly a form of psychological treatment called cognitive behavior therapy, which is useful for a range of, of uh, mental disorders, but it's certainly useful for the treatment of bulimia. So that's helpful, um, as well as antidepressants, uh, particularly um, uh, fluoxetine or Prozac uh, has, has been established um, to be a benefit to people with bulimia. So that a bulimia is, is believed to be, and with, with reason, um, a, more, a disorder more, uh, that's easier to treat, easier to um, make go away, help people really overcome it on an outpatient basis. Um, so we have um, clearly effective um, weapons to aim at the treatment of bulimia. Well, and I know you and your colleagues have been involved in some of the most extensive treatment trials of the, the dealing with addressing eating disorders. So for bulimia in particular, what kind of overall success rates are there? Uh, in, in bulimia, we can get, um, again, for people who stick with it. I mean, you get into this issue of getting people to stick with the treatment. But if people stick with the treatment, we can get 50 to 75% of people symptom-free within um, six to nine months. Um, now, if we're, if we're really honest, if we, you know, if, we, if we look at the numbers and present them as we should, um, if you get, uh, let's say, 100 people come in uh, for good state-of-the-art psychotherapy for cognitive behavior treatment, um, um, a third of them in six months will be symptom-free. Now, the problem with the other two-thirds is, you know, what, what happens to people is they don't stick with it. So a good chunk of them are people who bail out. Um, 
because of the people who stay in the cognitive behavioral treatment, half of them um, are symptom-free in six months. And then medication will boost that some. So I think the, the number to keep in mind is uh, for people who can stick with it, half, three-quarters can be symptom-free with good treatment within a year. So for somebody out in the community who might be struggling with an eating disorder or know somebody who struggles with an eating disorder, how should they go about getting help? Is it the kind of thing where a good therapist who just does general therapy is likely to help, or do they need to seek out somebody who specializes in treatment of eating disorders? These are disorders for which specialized treatments um, are better than non-specialized treatments. So that um, certainly someone should not feel that their condition can't be helped unless they have been seen by people, until they've been seen and cared for by people who are very experienced in the treatment of these disorders. Now, um, whether they go there first um, or whether they try things that may be more locally available and convenient um, is uh, a more challenging and individual question. So that um, there's, re there's certainly reason to believe that uh, good therapy, even from a person who doesn't specialize in the specific treatment of eating disorders, there's good reason to think it'll be helpful. And for some people, it may be sufficient. But what is important is if it isn't sufficient, not to stop there. Um, because specialized centers have techniques um, um, and um, knowledge that is often not um, available uh, in non-specialist settings. So it's good to start with uh, your local physician, A, make sure that your physical state has been assessed, and local resources, because they'll be helpful. But if they're not sufficient, don't stop there. And if somebody has a friend or family member with eating disorders and is struggling with the question of, do I bring it up? Do I mention it to them? What should I do to be most helpful? What would you say? Um, my bias on that, it's a tough question, A. Uh, but B, my bias um, is yes, to raise it in a empathic, uh, quiet, non-critical um, uh, uh, fashion. Um, so rather than um, yelling at somebody, criticizing them for their perhaps obviously strange um, uh, eating behavior, uh, the best recommendation, which can be hard to execute, but the best recommendation is try to find a quiet time um, where uh, the friend can express his or her concern um, about their friend's uh, behavior or weight. Say, gee, I'm worried about you. You know, I really do care about you. I'm worried. Are you okay? And try to push it a little bit. Open the door. Open the door and try to uh, allow them room to express um, their own understanding of their uh, behavior and hope that leads somewhere so that you can have a dialogue about it without scolding them um, or criticizing them um, out of their problem because that, that won't work. Do you believe there's a role for prevention? Prevention's a, a, a tough question. Per, um, uh, it, it, in some ways, it's the holy grail. I mean, we, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could prevent these disorders from occurring? Now, <laughs> an obvious major problem is since we don't know what causes the disorders, it's hard to prevent them. Um, so there's sort of a fundamental issue. But people have, smart people have made good efforts to try to reduce 
some of the factors, minimize the, the contributing factors that appear to be relevant. Um, I, I personally don't think we know enough yet to say establish a national prevention program. I don't think we have the data uh, in hand uh, that are sufficient to merit mounting such a program. Um, I, I am personally uh, drawn to what um, uh, has been called secondary prevention programs. So rather than aim a prevention program at all kids, say, in school, um, I don't, I, I worry about that because most kids are not going to develop eating disorders. I mean, you know, it's not like measles um, where all kids are vulnerable. Uh, if they get exposed to the virus, most kids are going to get the measles. Um, most kids, even though they're exposed to the environment uh, where eating disorders occur, don't get eating disorders. So we don't need to worry about most kids. So perhaps um, a program which tries to identify kids, young people, who have shown the beginnings of a problem. Um, maybe those are the folks we should target uh, with a, some sort of intervention. I mean, it makes sense. I think it makes intuitive sense that if we can identify those guys, girls, and bring them in somehow, or I'll make available to them uh, an intervention, maybe that's a way to reduce uh, problems from turning, minor problems from developing into clinical problems. So I think that sort of uh, logic um, is one that's appealing. I, and some good efforts have been made um, to begin to utilize that kind of approach, but I still don't think we know quite enough yet to say we're ready to launch um, a, a, a nationwide program. Maybe we could end by asking you to prognosticate, which is not easy, of course, but if you, um, if you look ahead to what you think the next generation of developments are likely to be or what the exciting things on the horizon are likely to be, uh, is there any way that uh, you might give us a forecast of what you think may come in upcoming years? Um, I think we'll get better with the treatment of anorexia nervosa. I am optimistic that uh, people have now um, clearly recognized the problem, um, that, that our methods aren't as good as they need to be. Um, I think innovative efforts um, are, are currently underway. Um, uh, efforts to see if uh, early interventions f um, for families, to help families deal with kids um, who've got um, anorexia nervosa. Um, I think we'll know more about that. I'm optimistic that'll be successful. Uh, for older people who have suffered with anorexia nervosa, where we do need innovation, I think efforts are now underway uh, to develop um, uh, novel uh, ideas to help people get over it and stay over it, both um, psychological behavioral methods and biological methods, medication. Uh, I think, I, th I hope that in the next decade um, or before, we'll be able to treat anorexia nervosa more effectively and definitively than we can now. For bulimia, um, I think there is work going on that over time, maybe a little longer time, we have the, sort of the good news about bulimia is that we have good treatments. The bad news is they're not perfect. We need more. Um, but it, it's sort of a, once you've got some good treatments, it's challenging actually to develop better treatments. Um, 
Um, or to even to see that the good treatments get used on a broader oh, scale. That's a, by and, and you are right. You remind me of a very important issue for our field, and that is uh, for bulimia in particular, where we have good treatments, the challenge is to get people to, to learn them and to use them. Um, and that's, uh, I, again, that's a problem people are really worrying about. Um, I would be hopeful that there are enough good people worrying about it uh, that we'll see improvement on, on that front. Good. Well, thank you, uh, Tim. It's been wonderful having you as a guest, and you've, you've very nicely pointed out how serious these disorders are, but how there's hope for people who have them, and a lot of good scientists like you working on perfecting the treatments, um, and a lot of resources available for people who have eating disorders. So thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So our guest today was B. Timothy Walsh, MD, a professor and a psychiatrist at Columbia University and directors, director of the eating disorders program there, and one of the leading figures in the world on understanding and treating eating disorders. Uh, please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org to see a list of podcasts and other resources that the Rudd Center has to offer. Thank you very much.